So last week, church, we did, if you were here, begin this book of Hosea. And we covered only verses 1 and 2 last week because in just those two verses, we saw the background setting of this book. And that was how, remember, this nation of Israel at this time was prospering materially and looked really great on the outside. And yet they were actually decaying in their relationship with the Lord. And then last week we saw how God spoke to and through Hosea in that historical setting, which applies to you and me because that means that this book is not merely a book or Hosea's words, but it's God's word. And then finally and biggest of all last week, we saw what God shockingly told Hosea to do. And that was to marry and to love a literal prostitute at that time and take her children that she already had by her prostitution into his family and love them as well. And briefly on that topic, I should add, this is because I had multiple people talk to me about this after the message last week. I just want to add that concerning Gomer herself in her prostitution, we actually don't really know that much about her. But what we do know is that it does seem clear, right, in the, in the Bible that God had Hosea, as a symbolic act, marry someone who was willingly rebellious in her unfaithfulness, right, to represent Israel, which was full of men and women who were willingly rebellious. And I say that because I do know that often throughout history, right, women in prostitution haven't always been so because they were willingly rebellious, And often that is far from the case. But that said, it does seem that that was the case with Gomer here. And and that's why many scholars actually think that Gomer maybe was a cult prostitute in the cult worship of Baal back then, the pagan god of Baal, because that would have made her rebellion more willful and intentional. But in the end, we we honestly don't really know. Instead, all we do know is that Gomer was chosen chosen to represent rebellious Israel, and we know that when she married Hosea, even after she did that, she would be unfaithful to him. And overall, though, still, the point is not mainly that she's so bad as much as the point is that Israel at the time is like her, and that we're like her on our own, unfaithful to God. But anyways, that was just last week. But that then now brings us to what we just read this week. And what we'll see here is these three children that Hosea and Gomer then had together, and we're especially going to see what they each symbolize. And on this passage, though, before we do dive in together, just thinking about what we're about to see from, let's say, 30,000 feet, and thinking about it even in the Bible as a whole, I just want to point out that, yes, what we're going to see here is, is strange and difficult in some ways, but its overall theme of the rest of this chapter here isn't that rare in God's Word. Because in short, what we're about to see, if you want to break it down, is we're going to see God's justice and judgment promised, but also God's mercy promised. And in the Bible as a whole, that's not rare at all. Instead, God's just judgment and his mercy are both talked about a lot in God's word. And in fact, a biblical scholar that I respect recently came out with a book the last five years or so uh, where he tried to give an overview of the whole Bible and summarize really the main theme and the story and the stories in the Bible. And of course, he's clear that it all points to Jesus, but in terms of how he summed up the stories, all the stories in the Bible and the overarching plot of this big book, he said it was this, quote, God's glory in salvation through judgment. 
That's the title of this book. He, he made God's glory in salvation through judgment. Meaning the main themes in this whole Bible are, yes, God revealing his glory towards people who don't deserve it in salvation, but also that salvation is always put up against the backdrop of righteous or just judgment. And concerning why that's the main theme in God's word, it isn't just random or because God just wants to talk about it. Instead, it's because those two themes are central aspects of our reality as well. Because God is real and we are real as those made in his image and yet something is different and off about us and our world. Right, and that's our brokenness, our sin, the way things aren't supposed to be about us. And so in the Bible, God often reveals what we simply deserve. Right? That's the reality of justice or what we can call judgment. It's like in a courtroom with a person sitting there has committed a real crime and deserves certain results. And so that's in God's word a lot because justice is a real reality and even a good thing. But also, so is mercy. And mercy isn't technically the opposite of justice. Instead, mercy is taking justice into real account and also treating someone better than they could deserve. Mercy is similar to grace. And the point is, in the Bible, those themes are common because that's reality. That's our reality, justice and mercy. And of course, if you're thinking about this already, the primary example of that is Jesus and his cross. Because especially there, we see God's glory in salvation through judgment because Jesus took our sins in our place. That was God's mercy against the backdrop of judgment through judgment as Jesus was judged in our place. And so justice and mercy. And though, as we'll see, that's true in Hosea here as well. It's true really of this whole book of Hosea, but especially of verses 3 through 11 this morning. Here we will see God's justice and judgment promised very clearly, but we're also going to see a stunning display of God's mercy. Which finally all then brings us to our outline of how we'll go through this this morning. So we're covering all of verses 3 through the end of chapter 1. And we'll see here there's basically two clear sections in all of this. Two clear sections. And so for us, first, we're going to see Hosea Hosea and Gomer's three children that they had together and how they overall represent God's justice and judgment. And in this first section, we will see some mercy mentioned, but overall these children symbolize God's coming justice. So that'll be our first section. But then second, we'll turn and we'll see the reason why God reveals his judgment. And that's ultimately for the sake of his great plan of mercy. And so we'll see God's promised plan of mercy in the second section. And so in summary, two sections. First, the symbolic children, how they overall point to God's justice and judgment. And then second, God's greater plan of mercy. And in both of those sections, we will see how they seriously but also beautifully do apply to you and me. But all that said, let's then dive in together, church, and begin this first longer section here. And again, here we're going to see God's justice and judgment revealed in these three symbolic children. And it's somewhat important to kind of note that they are symbolic children. Because to be clear, it's not therefore the children themselves that are at issue at all. Instead, it's what their names symbolize. But anyways, for this, we're going to be in verses 3 all the way through verse 9. And there's three symbolic children that Hosea and Gomer had. And so we'll take them just one at a time. 
And so let's begin with that first symbolic child in verses 3 through 5. So look down your Bibles. Hosea 1, verses 3 through 5. So he, Hosea, went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So concerning this first child, as you can see, to start he was a boy. And God was told Hosea to name him Jezreel. And as for Jezreel, the word itself in Hebrew means God sows, and we'll come back to that later in the message. But concerning the history of Jezreel itself, Jezreel was a location in Israel, a a valley, a place where some significant things happened in the Old Testament. Because to to begin, the valley of Jezreel was the location where Gideon, in the book of Judges, if you know his story, it's where he and his 300 men amazingly and miraculously won their battle against those Midianites by God's grace and by trusting in the Lord. And, And so that was at first a very positive thing that happened in this valley of Jezreel. But then, many years later, Jezreel started to take a downward spiral because later on, it also then became the place where that story of Naboth's vineyard occurred. And if you know that story at all from the book of 1 Kings, in short, Naboth was a man back in Israel who who owned this vineyard that King Ahab at the time really wanted for himself. And then after seeing the vineyard, Ahab went home and he sulked because he so badly wanted the vineyard. And then seeing this, King Ahab's wife at the time, Jezebel, convinced him that he's the king, right? And he deserves to have the vineyard. And then so finally, Ahab and Jezebel, they contrived this awful plan and lie saying that Naboth had cursed God, even though he didn't which led to Naboth being killed, also that this king of Israel, Ahab, could have that vineyard. And so that happened in Jezreel. And then, some years even after that, still also in Jezreel, King Ahab's son, King Joram, was killed by his general, Jehu, who's in our passage here, because of what happened with Naboth's vineyard. And then finally, even after that, Jehu then killed and slaughtered many, many, many more of King Ahab's descendants in Jezreel. And so I know there's a lot, but that's this place of Jezreel. And all that said then, Jezreel, if you're tracking, first was a place of astonishing, astonishing victory and faith in the Lord. And then it became a place of deception and murder by an Israelite king and his wife. And then it finally became a place known as, a, as the Valley of Bloodshed. And therefore, concerning this son Jezreel and what God is saying here, as you can see in verses 4 and 5, God said, God promised... He'd essentially do two things concerning justice here. Two things. First, and most specifically in our text, he said he'd, quote, punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And and that should now make sense because that's justice. Because while Jehu was actually told to punish Ahab's family a little bit back then because of Naboth's vineyard, the reality is in the story, Jehu went overboard and he killed and slaughtered a lot of Ahab's descendants in Jezreel. And so first, and most specifically in our passage, God promises he'll bring justice and judgment to Jehu's line. But then second, more generally, 
As you can see, God not only promises to punish Jehu's line, but he adds in verse 4, quote, And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And then he adds in verse 5, quote, And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in that valley of Jezreel. And all that is more broad because that's now a promise from God to put an end to the kingdom of house of Israel as a whole. And the bow back then was just a way of symbolizing talking about someone's army. And so this second promise here is a more general promise that the kingdom of Israel and Israel's army will be defeated. So I know it's a lot, but that's his first child. In short, his name was Jezreel to remind the people and even to remind us right now of how something or some place that was once good and faithful to the Lord could then be turned so bad and faithless. And so God was going to bring justice and judgment. And before we do move on to the second child, though, just so you know, both parts of this prophecy here in this, this first child did come to pass. Because we won't get into the details, but concerning Jehu's line, they, they were actually punished in history. And we know this from the historical records in the Old Testament. But not only that, and more importantly, the kingdom in Israel, of Israel in general and Israel's army was overtaken by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. 30 years or so after this, which is the main event that Hosea is prophesying in this whole book. That happened, just like God said it would. But that all now leads to the second symbolic child here. And this will now be a daughter. And for this will be in verses 6 and 7. So look down at your Bibles, verses 6 and 7. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So as for this child, her name means no mercy. But as you can see in the ESV footnote, her actual name in Hebrew was Lo Ruama, which again just means no mercy. And as for why, as compared to her brother Jezreel, hers is a little more straightforward because she's called this because as God says, as you can see, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. And now, for us, hearing that, especially coming from God, who we know is merciful, that might be a little bit difficult. Because you might be wondering, can God not be merciful? And why would God not be merciful? And we might particularly struggle, especially with that line, as you can see, of how he won't forgive them at all. But it's in God's word. And when we, though, struggle with questions like that, something that may be really helpful, and I think is really helpful for us to remember and understand, is what mercy, remember, by definition is. And here's what I mean. Notice, God doesn't say here that he's going to be unfair towards them. Nor does he say that he's not going to treat them with equity or not give them what they deserve. That would all be wrong and unjust of God. Instead, God here is simply saying that he's going to give them what they fairly deserve. And that's it. Because remember, mercy is getting better than what we deserve. Justice alone is getting simply what's fair and right. 
And that's why I remember the idea of God being able to save people through judgment is that people, us, on our own, do deserve just and fair judgment. Or an analogy I often like to use is that in the Bible, the picture isn't that we're all neutral, right? That we're all just neutral, like standing around in a field as as neutral blobs, and and God just decides to come and save some of us and, and not save others, while the rest of us are standing in a field wishing that God would save us. That that's just not the picture. That's not true. It is true that we as sinful people want to think of ourselves like that. We want to think that we're just neutral, and we want to put God at fault. It's amazing how we want to do that, but that's just not true. And honestly, I think we know better. And so instead, the the real picture in the Bible is more like all of us in rebellion actually running away from God, wanting nothing to do with him, and and about to hurt ourselves and and fall off a cliff. And God's mercy, God's deliverance, his salvation is then him coming and in love turning people away from the cliff and turning them towards him for their good and for his glory. That's mercy. And so the point is, if God decides not to do that, to not show mercy, then it surely isn't unfair of him at all. We're the ones running away from him. And in fact, he'd just be fairly giving us what we, what's ours, right? And so back now to verse 6, that's then what's going on here. God is saying, I will no more be merciful to you, Israel as a nation. I'm just going to bring mere justice towards you. But as you might have noticed, concerning the second child, that's not all God says here. It's interesting. Because he won't have mercy on the house of Israel. We'll talk about that more. But in verse 8, if you notice, concerning the southern kingdom of Judah... He says, look at the end of verse 8, or all of verse 8. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And so now, what's going on here? Well, in short, remember, in history, Israel's nation at this point was split up between the southern kingdom known as Judah and the northern kingdom known as Israel, which gets a little confusing. But it's the northern kingdom of Israel that was exiled soon after this in 722 BC, while the southern kingdom of Judah wasn't actually exiled until about 130 years later in history, we know, and that was in 586 BC. And, and why were they exiled at different times? Well, it's because if you know your Old Testaments at all, you might know that the southern kingdom of Judah had a few kings who truly had the Lord as their God and tried to worship the Lord and the people followed. But compared to that, the northern kingdom of Israel, it's interesting, didn't even have one king in the Old Testament who wanted the Lord their God as their God and was faithful and the people followed. And so the northern kingdom of Israel at this point was faithless, we can use that word, while the southern kingdom of Judah was still faithful to God. And yet, even when we say that, that they were faithful in the southern kingdom, we can't imagine, though, that they earned mercy, while the northern kingdom didn't earn mercy. Because again, that's not how mercy works. That wouldn't be mercy. Instead, if you want to think about it this way, Judah being faithful simply meant that they still had faith. Meaning they still saw God as their God and they loved him and they realized they needed him and they therefore tried to follow him. While for the northern kingdom of Israel at this point, that was not the case. And I know that might be a lot, but that's actually pretty important for us to keep in mind as well because it is true 
Mercy is mercy, and it is always undeserved. But also, it's true in the Bible that us having God as our God does matter in order for us to receive mercy from him. And I know that might be sounding like just splitting hairs, but it's important. And that's why in the New Testament, it's very clear. We are taught that we are saved and loved and okay with God by grace through faith alone. Because we do need to receive what Jesus has done for us. But if we do, it's not our receiving that saves us. It's Jesus, right? It's God and his mercy. And finally, though, I point all that out, especially here in Hosea 1.7, because notice, God himself actually makes that crystal clear in how he talks about how he's going to save Judah. And this amazingly applies to us because, yes, Judah is still trusting the Lord. But notice, first, God makes clear in verse 7, I will save them by the Lord their God. (laughs) Which is kind of weird sounding on purpose because God is saying, I, God, will be merciful to them and save them by me doing it, not them. And then second, he makes it even clearer where he says, I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Meaning it isn't human achievement or strength that saves them. It's God. And again, we have to keep that in mind as well because we do need God as our God. We do need to receive Jesus for mercy. But in our saving, it is all the Lord. So that's the second child. But that finally now leads us to the third and last symbolic cheer. And this is the simplest, but also in some ways, this is the biggest judgment of all. Look down at your Bibles, verses 8 and 9. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So this is another son. And this son's name means not my people, which is three words and longer in English, but literally in Hebrew, as you can see in the ASV footnote again, then his name was just lo am I, not my people. And so with all these three kids now named, the first child symbolizes a punishment for Jehu's line and Israel's kingdom and Israel's army. And then it went deeper, if you will, with the idea of showing no more mercy. But now here it is the deepest because God says, you are not my people. And that's the shortest section. But out of all of this, that may now be the hardest for us to hear. Because now the question becomes, can God say that? Right? To his people? Can God turn his back on his people? And that is a huge question. And to answer it, it very matters what we actually mean. Because first, in the Bible, in the New Testament, and even very clearly in the Old Testament, it's clear that God never turns his back on his actual people. Nor can those who are genuinely his people ever be lost. And that does matter for us in Christ because Jesus saves us and Jesus himself taught us that no one can snatch his people out of his hand. And the New Testament promises that all of us who are saved will persevere all the way unto glory. And so no one is lost along the way. And so in that sense, Old Testament, New Testament, God doesn't and cannot forsake those who are really his people. So that is absolutely true. But then what's going on here? Well, think about it. What makes here in the Old Testament unique, and we have to remember this, is God's relationship to the nation of Israel as a whole back then. 
Because remember, the nation of Israel as a whole was was in a covenant relationship with God, which was unique. And that included every single person in the nation of Israel. And yet, not everyone in Israel was genuinely saved. It was really of God's people. Some people did trust in the Lord genuinely, but many people didn't. And it's with that in mind that then makes sense of what God is saying to the northern kingdom here in verse 9. Because it's to this collective group of the northern kingdom of Israel at this time, which was full of people who overall did not trust the Lord at all. It's to them that God says, you are not my people and I am not your God. Meaning they have overall turned from him so much that for them the covenant is broken. And in fact, that's why such strong language is used here because if you know your Old Testaments, you might know that the typical covenantal formula or statement that God uses with Israel all the time in the Bible is, I will be your God and you will be my people. But notice, here in verse 9, that is flipped. Because first, the people are no longer God's people, meaning the people have turned from the Lord. And so what's the result? I am not your God. And finally on this section though, it's actually important to note that literally in Hebrew, those last few words of verse 9 from God's lips are, I am not yours. And again in the ESV footnote, you can see that. And I I just want to point that out for a second because that's really significant. Especially here in Hosea. Because I know so much perhaps about this talk of justice and judgment has been a lot. But now that last sentence there of verse 9 gets across what's really going on here. And what's really at stake in all of this. And it's not merely that God is not their God who they happen to worship or even who they happen to be saved by. Instead it's that the living God is no longer theirs. And in, the, and in this context of Hosea, which remember is all about this analogy of a personal intimate marriage that's supposed to strike us. Because that last line is a relational statement. It's the opposite of when a husband or wife says to their spouse, I am yours and you are mine. And so in contrast to that, God is very clearly saying, you don't have me. They've turned from him and so they no longer have him. I am not yours, which is tragic. So that's these three children. And connecting this then to the last week and this whole illustration, therefore, in Hosea, if we were there, at this point, Hosea had married Gomer as a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness. He had taken Gomer's children in as a picture of the result of unfaithfulness. And now with these three children, everyone would see a picture of God's coming justice and judgment. And for us, to be clear, all that applies because while for the Israelites... All the way back then, this justice and judgment did come in 722 AD. The overall idea here still of God's justice and coming judgment, even in the New Testament, still does apply to you and me. Because the truth is, this is still who our God is. There's no difference in the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is still the living God, meaning God is still, and we see this in the New Testament, a God of justice and a God of mercy. And toward those who are truly His, He shows mercy. Abundant mercy, as we're about to see in our second section. And and especially we now know he shows that mercy in Christ. But it's also true that if we do not personally have God as our God, there is justice coming. Judgment coming. And again, when that justice comes, we need to remember it won't be God who's at fault. Rather, he's simply going to be showing justice. He'll be showing what's fair. 
And so for us, practically, we, should, we need to each realize our sin, our need for God, and cling to him for mercy, which amazingly is promised to us in Christ. So that's the first and longest section here. And that is the majority of this chapter. But that all now leads us to turn and beautifully go to our second section. And so in brief, that is what they deserve and that's what we deserve in justice and judgment. But now just look down and notice the first word of verse 10. Yet. (laughs) Meaning all of this has set the stage for what's about to come. And it's a beautiful thing. And so what is going to happen Well, first, let's now read the end of all of chapter 1 now, verse 10 through the end of chapter 1. And notice here, especially if you had the question of, has God abandoned his people swirling around in your head? Notice now what God promises, verses 10 and 11. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. This is really important because think about what we've seen in most of Hosea chapter 1. God is just. This is what his people deserve. And yet, notice God is also merciful and he's got a great plan of mercy. That's essentially what we see here. And now for what this plan of mercy is, there's basically three aspects to it in these verses. Three aspects. And the first and most basic aspect of this plan of mercy is what you can see God talk about right away in verse 10. And that is the number of the children that God says he's really going to have. Quote, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. In other words, you Israel right now are turning from me. Because remember, he just said that in verse 9. You are not my people. I am not yours. And so that's happening. But now here in verse 10, God is saying, Yet there is going to be so many people who do have me. And it's, it's going to be innumerable, like the sand of the sea. Or, or say another way, he's saying, yes, back then, you Israel, your unfaithfulness is bleak. But I will have beaches of people who will worship and know me. And as you might know, when you hear that, that's that's not only God saying he's going to have a lot of people, but it's also him showing that he's going to fulfill his promises. Because remember, all the way back in Genesis twenty-two seventeen, one of those famous promises that God made to Abraham was that he would multiply his descendants like the sand on the seashore. And so God is saying here that that will happen. So that's the first aspect of God's plan of mercy here. It's the number of children he'll have. But then second, we also see then here where that will happen. And that's seen in the second sentence of verse 10. Look down there. Quote, And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And so God is going to show mercy for tracking to a lot of people, but where is that mercy going to be poured out? Well, in the place where people who were not his people then become his people, even his children. And now this is really awesome because this fulfillment has really two layers to it. Two layers. Because think about it. First, in the plainest sense, this clearly is saying that there's some people in Israel 
right? Which is the place, remember, where God just said that they're not his people. This verse is saying that some people there in Israel will go from not his people to his people again. You can see that. In other words, the first simple layer of this promise is that some Israelites again will come to know the Lord. And that's true. But even bigger than that, what's so great about this promise is how broad it literally is. And we know this because this is actually how the Apostle Paul in the New Testament takes this exact verse. And, and, this, is, and this is really cool because notice here in Hosea 1.10, God is simply saying that he'll have innumerable numbers of people who become the children of Israel, meaning who become his people. And, and where is that going to happen? Well, in the place where people who were not, once not his people become his children. And where can that be? Well, think about it. People are not his people all over the world. And so the idea is this place here can basically be anywhere in the world. And again, we know this, not because I'm interpreting it that way, because that's exactly how the Apostle Paul takes this verse in Romans 9. <laughs> because there, he's talking about how Jews and Gentiles now in Christ are in God's people, are in, as he calls, the Israel of God. And Paul says this, quote, Even us who he, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, and in the very place it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. That's Romans 9, 24 and 25. <laughs> and, and so that's you and me. And that's what makes this promise so great because, because the truth is we each were once people who were not God's people. And that is true not only because we're sinners naturally, but also because most, if not all of us, are Gentiles. Meaning we weren't in any sort of relationship with the living God. And so we were rightly on a path only to receive the fair and just judgment that we deserve. But now in Jesus, and because of what Jesus did, people like us who were not God's people go to being God's people. And not only go to being his people, but as Hosea said, amazingly, we become children of the living God. We go from not being God's people to being adopted into his very family. And we know that now happens in Christ. And so very simply, all that has come true. Which finally leads us to the third and last aspect of God's plan of mercy here. So we've seen the number of people, we've seen where. And now last... In this chapter, we're going to see what being in this mercy will be like. And what will it be like? Well, that's all of verse 11. Because there it begins with, quote, And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And so that clearly is a picture of unity amongst God's people. A sweet togetherness. But not only that, but then notice second, what's next? Quote, And they shall appoint for themselves one head. And so what will it be like? Unity, yes, but not just a general unity, but specifically a unity centered around one head, one leader. And in fact, that one head idea, that one leader is expanded on and even clarified in Hosea 3.5. We'll, we'll be there in a few weeks, but just quickly hear what God promises there. This is Hosea 3.5, quote, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now, David had already passed. And so who is this head? Well, he's the Lord their God and David their king. And of course, you know where that's going. <laughs> that's Jesus. 
as was predicted. Jesus is our Lord. He's the fulfillment of David, the king. He's our head. He's the one we reunite around. And in him, we find mercy. And so that's most of this aspect of what it will be like here. But there's one more thing to cover in this chapter. And it's really interesting because that's all, that all leads us really to that last sentence. And that's the only thing we haven't covered yet. So God promises an innumerable number of people from not his children to his children unified around one head. And so what's the last line of Hosea chapter 1? Quote, And they shall go out from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And at first, of course, that is a confusing line, but it's actually a beautiful one. Because to begin on it, as for the going up from the land, there's actually many options as to what it could mean. Because it could just be a picture of God's people being victorious. It could be a picture of them leaving the land of exile. Or, and I actually hold this last view, in the Hebrew, it could actually be talking about the land itself being really fruitful. With plants, for example, growing up. But anyway, that's just the first phrase. But more important than that. And easier to understand is that last half sentence of chapter 1. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now on that, I know, remember Jezreel was just the name of Hosea's first symbolic son. That's all we know from this chapter and we know the history of Jezreel. And that was symbolizing God's justice because of the bloodshed in Jezreel. But also, remember now how I said earlier that Jezreel, literally in Hebrew, if we're reading Hebrew, just means God sows. Well, that now really comes into play here. And this is just a great picture, honestly, to summarize this whole chapter. Because think again about the valley of Jezreel. It means God sows, right? God plants and then will be fruitful. In a way, we know God showed that at first with that story of Gideon, where they miraculously and fruitfully had 300 men that defeated this amazing army. But then the valley of God's sows became a place of deception with Ahab and Jezebel. And then the valley of God's sows became a place of bloodshed with Jehu. And so therefore we see God is promising justice and judgment. But the point here is the day is coming when man, God is going to sow and be fruitful again. Great shall be the day of Jezreel. The day where God sows and plants and produces fruit. Fruit of people who know him like you and me. Great will be the day of him sowing and showing such mercy. And for us, we should hear that and and just simply praise God. Because church, we're in that time. The great day of Jezreel. Because think about it, the gospel of Jesus is spreading. These promises have come to pass. His mercy is known. Many people from all over the world are coming to know the living God. We have one head, one Lord, Jesus our King. And God is abounding in his mercy towards sinners like you and me. Great is the day of Jezreel. And so church, that is Hosea chapter 1. It is a chapter full of justice and judgment, but also it is a chapter that promises such mercy. And so for us, as we close, I just do think those ideas of justice and mercy are simply the biggest takeaway for us to really consider and to apply to ourselves. Because again, just think about what these Israelites in history were to take away from all of us. They were hearing all of this and they were watching all of this happen. They watched Hosea marry Gomer. They watched him take her kids in. They watched them have children. And, when we're, and they were supposed to realize that 
they were unfaithful. And that meant for them first, if they were personally somebody who was unfaithful to the Lord, they were to realize that God was a God of justice. That fair and right judgment was coming if they don't have God. And to be honest, for you and me, that is still true. And that's why in the New Testament, we're taught that this is all of us on our own. We deserve justice from God, the good and right judge. But also what they and what we should realize is that yet there is hope. And it's not found in us being impressive or all of a sudden being good enough, but it's in God who shows mercy. Or specifically, remember verse 8, the hope is in God who saves, not by bow or by sword or by horses or by war or by horsemen, but by himself. And so again, all this is still the case today in the gospel of Jesus. God amazingly saves people through judgment and that happens in Christ. And so one last time for us, again, let's just make sure that we in our hearts really realize that we're sinners. Let's make sure we believe all this about our God and his justice, but also... Let's make sure we're happily clinging to this God of mercy. For mercy. Because the truth is, Jesus the King has come. He's our head. He's our hope. We unite around him. And in him, us sinners forever find mercy. And that is good news.